The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Hi, I'm Jeff Goldfarb, U.S. Editor at Reuters Breaking Views, filling in for Rob Cox on this week's edition of The Exchange. I recently sat down with Tony Ressler, the co-founder and chief executive of Aries Management, a private equity firm in Los Angeles. Aries manages $100 billion and makes loans in the United States and Europe, ranging from $10 million to $1 billion, invests in real estate, and buys companies. Tony and I talked about the bull market under President Donald Trump, what's happening with his firm's troubled investment in luxury retailer Neiman Marcus, the problems facing higher education in the United States, and his own personal acquisition of the Atlanta Hawks basketball team. He's pretty optimistic given some of the circumstances, and I think maybe only part of that has to do with the sunny weather in Los Angeles. We build this, obviously, as sort of animal spirits in the Trump era. I don't know about people out here. Certainly back on the East Coast, we could easily devote an hour talking about Trump. We are not going to do that now, uh, which I think Tony is very happy about. But we are going to start there because, we're, we're, if nothing else, we are truth in advertising. So let me just start with sort of the, the broad picture on this, which is that we've talked a lot about the Trump rally, which happened since the election. Um, equity markets are still pretty far ahead. They're 12%, 13% up. But the bond markets have uh, come back. The dollar index is sort of right back to where it started at the time of the election. So we're hearing two different stories um, from different sorts of investors about what exactly maybe is happening in the administration. At this point in time, given what we've seen so far, who's got it right? Oof. Um, let's face it. Uh, I think in New York and Los Angeles, sometimes it's hard to have that civil and conversation about our current administration. I think. Uh, the Trump administration uh, and uh, President Trump, whether you voted for him or not, and uh, I might not have, but uh, he's our president, and I think he's doing a whole bunch of things that the business community and the financial community should and is clearly in favor of. There's a greater comfort level with the business community generally, and of course, uh, the financial reforms that we're hearing about, like a meaningful reduction in corporate tax rates, uh, like a meaningful repatriation of capital from offshore and a meaningful infrastructure spend, all of which I think are going to be meaningfully positive, to repeat myself over and over, it, meaningfully positive, like enormously positive to the U.S. economy if implemented as described, and yet we're not sure if they'll be Im implemented as described. So many of the things that I think the Trump administration is trying to do for the financial community, business community, for the economy overall, I think has some enormous positives. Uh, whether or not some of the other factors impact those economic changes, uh, some of the social issues, uh, some of the immigration-related issues, uh, some of the healthcare-related issues, whether that bogs down the financial reforms, that's where I think the marketplace is trying to weight that probability. And those that are betting that financial reforms will go through, I think are going to be benefited, if you will. And those that are betting that it won't because of all of the other non-financial or business issues, I think are uh, much more hesitant about being positive about today's marketplace. In the sort of hours after the election, there was the, and even before the election, there was this fear about Trump being president, that there was the volatility component of it. But then things turned around and everyone seized on the very issues, of course, that you're mentioning, that the tax cuts, the infrastructure spending. But it seems to be then 
there's this dissonance of sort of overlooking, well, let's not think too much about immigration or what healthcare might do, the costs, or what the trade policy might be and how that might. It feels like there's a lot of focus on the positive. But have people sort of overlooked or discounted, I guess in the financial parlance, discounted too much the weight of what those negative policy factors might, might do. Again, uh, you know, whether or not one chooses to go through life as an optimist and hoping for the best seems like a better way to go through life. But I would argue, at least, that uh, we have a president that has absolutely no experience being president or running a particularly large organization. And we all have to accept that, regardless of your political perspective. So uh, we're in the midst of a learning process which is incredibly bumpy, will continue to be. Most people, myself included, have argued that just having a president that communicates the way he does through Twitter and other means is going to add to levels of volatility in the marketplace and elsewhere, and it has, and it will continue to. So uh, again, I prefer to argue and hope that we can have a successful presidency because uh, I think that's better for all Americans. Some people don't agree with that. I I'm hoping that he succeeds, and I think that's best for all of us. Let's talk about the volatility component of that because it does, it feels volatile for sure. Um, you predicted, I think, before the election, like a lot of people, that, you know, there was no doubt that there was going to be, if President Trump became, you know, if Trump became president, there would be volatility. And yet, by the primary measure, at least in the markets, VIX um, is at, was, you know, recently at a, a low not seen since 1993. So how do you explain that? <laughs> I, I don't get it. Uh, listen, any president that is communicating by Twitter uh, and uh, making statements that are uh, very bold and unexpected and frustrating to many for good reason, I think you have to add to levels of volatility. I don't understand how the VIX is trading and where it is. Um, but nevertheless, I still think focusing on the business-related items that the Trump administration has put forward including a meaningful reduction in the corporate tax rate. Uh, again, to be more competitive globally, the idea of repatriating trillions of dollars of capital and having uh, lower corporate tax rates so that we are investing more in this country, uh, that's a positive. How does that affect you and Aries directly? I mean, if, if tomorrow this tax bill, a tax bill gets signed that cuts corporate tax rates and brings all the capital home cheaply, what, like, what's the first thing you're going to do? Well, I don't think we're going to do things much differently than what we're doing. Um, again, our view, generally speaking, has been to focus on investing in good companies. Come on now. Whether you look at our private equity business or whether you look at our credit businesses, uh, at the end of the day, you focus on good companies. You don't focus on tax rates. But good companies that pay lower taxes that want to spend more of their dollars investing in their plant and material and people generally is good for that company. So it actually makes good companies better because they have more capital to invest in their respective businesses. That's a good thing. One of the rules that sort of got rolled in that sort of directly affected private equity was this cap on leverage. And it wasn't, it was a more guideline that came out of the Federal Reserve more than a, an explicit rule. But there's a sense that maybe that gets rolled back. And there's some movement, I guess, on the Hill on that, which is different from these bigger issues. But it is one that directly impacts your business. How has that guideline from the Fed both hurt you and I, I presume helped you with your direct lending business as well? I think I would argue that it probably helped us more than it hurt us, if you will. Uh, highlighting bank balance sheets generally. And at the end of the day, we had a banking industry that 
had leveraged somewhere between 15 and maybe 40 times its capital base. So we had a highly levered banking industry. And to the credit of the US banking industry, it's made enormous progress. But you still have banks generally that are levered 12, 14, 16 times their book value or capital base. So should banks be in the highly leveraged lending business? Should banks be in the derivatives business? Should banks be in other forms of aggressive lending or investing when in fact you have access to the Fed window, when you have insurance on people's deposits, uh, when you are highly regulated? It's a difficult dilemma. And of course, it's why banks have been undergoing uh, all sorts of improved liquidity and capitalization requirements since 2008. And one could argue that was uh, late in the game. But the, the point being is all forms, all forms of aggressive investing on the balance sheet of a, of a regulated institution with insured deposits uh, is complicated. So uh, the government has said, and I believe continues to say, that they want banks to be better capitalized, yeah. less levered, more transparent. And that, that train has left the station, if you will. So to me, I don't know if that makes Aries more valuable, uh, but it certainly makes our banking system more stable. And that's a good thing for the economy, the U.S. and globally. No question in my mind. But you were doing direct lending before the financial crisis. Is there, has there been a palpable difference in the amount or the kinds or the quality of loans that you've been able to make because the banks have been were sidelined for quite a while and are now sort of still getting back up to, to speed? Uh, yes, yes, and yes. Uh, so. We manage about $35 billion in our direct lending book, or books, if you will. And that direct lending is predominantly U.S. and Europe. And if you think about it, we're making loans literally from $10 million in size to $1 billion in size. Uh, and generally speaking, we are taking a bit more risk than banks do. So banks are often lenders against inventory, against receivables, uh, on, if you will, uh, much shorter uh, time frames. We're making loans uh, to four, five, six times cash flow, and we're not making loans to syndicate. We're making loans to hold for our investor base. So again, in a lot of ways, when people go to buy or take out a loan to buy a company, uh, they're getting it subject to what they call flex language. Banks both have repricing ability and the requirement to syndicate. We're making loans uh, committed to hold for the length of that term. So again, it's a different business model. And again, this, many people think we're at uh, odds or uh, competing with the banks. The banks are focused on lending to countries, lending to individuals, uh, if you will, the consumer, and certainly to large companies. Uh, that middle market lending world where you don't have the ability to syndicate, in many instances, is far better for the long-term investor for sovereign funds, for pension funds, right. for high net worth investors that want to be, if you will, in the credit world and making, shall we say, uh, willing to withstand or give up liquidity for higher returns. Let's talk about floor and decor. So this is a business. Um, That's you, good. <laughs> I know you guys made a lot of money, or at least are on, on the way to making uh, quite a bit of money on that. Tell, tell me about, you know, this was a business you guys bought a few years ago in the flooring space. You tried to take it public, didn't work out. Now it's just gone public. It's the, I think it's the best performing IPO of the year so far. Tell us a little bit about that story and, and why it worked. Well, uh, again, it's, it's, uh, 
I, I actually would argue that if you're going to talk floor and decor, you have to talk uh, Neiman Marcus. You have to talk well, to uh, Smart and Final. <laughs> no, no, but I'm no, just no, saying if you look, yeah. if you talk floor it's and decor, you have, to, you have to look at the world of retail. Yeah. And uh, floor and decor is a game changer. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's a business that sells all sorts of flooring other than carpet. And hard flooring is growing in this country. And having the size of the box and, uh, if you will, taking away some of the intermediaries in the flooring business, you see what they're doing. It's, it's an extraordinary business. And uh, folks like us take credit for the extraordinary management running floor and decor. Uh, listen, it, it's a business model that uh, was described to us early on with very few stores. And it's been at least, if not better, than what we thought. But we actually thought it was going to be one of those game changers. The internet. Why? I mean, you did this in 2010. What, what was the broader idea about that particular industry, or was it, was it about homeowners? Was it a, what was the what was the story well, that you it, were? It was both. Uh, it was definitely about continued economic growth in the U.S., which we saw, but uh, and housing, but much more so, it was about the way people buy their flooring and uh, buying flooring through distributors or superstores that didn't have the offering, that didn't have the depth of offering that I think uh, the consumer was looking for. And we saw what was happening in the 15 stores they had. So, listen, it's, uh, it's exactly what you look for. And then, of course, you have to lay on to that uh, the impact uh, the online model is going to have to every retailer in America. And uh, we made the bet in Floor and Decor that the online business could help them but wouldn't and couldn't hurt them dramatically because of what was available, because of how inventories are held, because of how distribution has been disrupted. So again, I, I think uh, looking at the world of retail and consumer, it's changed dramatically over the last 10 years, I think for some obvious reasons. And uh, you have to make bets. Uh, most of our bets have actually been pretty accurate, but not all. So, what, so let's go to the not all. What, um, what went wrong on Neiman Marcus in terms of what, what did you go in thinking that didn't happen? Well, uh, again, under the category of uh, looking at 99 cent stores, looking at uh, Smart and Final, looking at Floor and Decor, as you can see, we, we kind of looked at the very, very attractively priced world. Uh, we don't like to use low end, but uh, the very price competitive uh, world of retail uh, and the very, very high end world of retail. We thought that was the, the best approach. Okay. I, I must say, I know this sounds silly. I'm not trying to be defensive. Uh, we're still huge believers in Neiman Marcus. We still think it has a brand that stands for something. We still think they have a very, very substantial online business, the largest of the high-end retailers. Uh, extraordinary high-end business, extraordinary customer loyalty. And by the way, a store base in uh, 40 or so markets in Neiman Marcus. So it's, it's not like they're overstored. It's not like they don't have the online presence. It's not like they don't have brand loyalty. All right, that's the good news. I think what we're also learning is that there is uh, enormous price competition at the high end. I think when you compete in the free shipping world and people are buying very expensive items online and buying five or six and shipping back four or five and price comparing using the internet for super high end product and using that online shipping, the, the model is changing not just for the middle, not just for the lower end, but certainly for the higher end. The model is changing, and of course what you have to do is offer, I guess what they'll call a, a unified, I think many people are now using the omnichannel uh, type of term, but you have to make the store experience and the online experience truly interconnected. And uh, we know what we have to do. I think based on our recent performance, you'd have to acknowledge we haven't done what we know we have to do. 
we have work to do. We're not giving up. Um, again, I don't mean to, to be overly defensive, but uh, sometimes you buy great businesses and they don't do what you hoped initially, and you have choices. Uh, one choice, I guess, is to give up. I don't think we're making that choice. Uh, and the other is to try to reaffirm and focus on what we think Neiman has to offer. Uh, and it still has an extraordinary offering of product and customer loyalty. Uh, what we haven't yet figured out is how to make more money from, from the six-plus billion that we're doing. So uh, uh, we'll figure that out, but it's taken a little more time than we might have thought. So you say you're not giving up. Does that mean you're not selling it? Well, we don't, uh, under the category of how, uh, um, how we like to uh, talk about our businesses, we're focused on making it better. Whether we uh, buy businesses, sell businesses, or whatnot, our focus on Neiman Marcus right now is making it better. Okay. Tell me about the, the broader window into the American consumer based on exactly what you talked about, whether it's you know, flooring, whether it's 99-cent stores, whether it's the high-end luxury market through Neiman, Smart and Final. What, I mean, that gives you a pretty good, um, you know, a, a unique window into what people are thinking about. What, what's your feel? Well, not just, uh, again, we could speak a lot of retail because that's uh, many folks uh, understand the retail yeah. companies that we own. But uh, we, uh, let's see, I would say in our uh, liquid credit business, in our direct lending business, and our private equity business, we have 1,200, 1,300 companies that we look at its numbers, if you will, or their numbers, literally weekly, monthly, quarterly. So we have an enormous number of companies that we're analyzing, uh, both in the U.S. and Europe. So we do have a sense of the consumer, and we have a sense of uh, U.S. GDP growth overall. And uh, generally speaking, we see a pretty decent economy. Specific to the consumer and retail, I think what's happened, uh, again, I don't want to uh, project some great expertise that we're still learning, uh, but I, I think the, uh, the consumer is able to comparison shop where value buying is becoming the norm and shopping more thoughtfully on every item, uh, on your car, on your health care, on your suit, on your dress, um, on your dishwasher. So there's more information to price shop and to comparison shop today than there ever has been. And folks that are in the investing business, I promise you at Aries Management, we're trying to figure out how you succeed uh, with that dynamic. Let's talk about another industry and another company. Um, there's been a lot of movement in private equity in the technology industry lately. A lot of capital being poured into funds for software in particular. I don't think you do a lot of it, but you, you did a really interesting deal with a company called Click. One, I think one of your biggest investments as well, yeah. and did it, in it with a unique structure. Tell us about Unitranch debt, why it's important, and, you know, and, and what that deal was about. Sure. Uh, well, that was, uh, again, a... Uh, it was a really high-quality sponsor, high-quality company. Uh, it was a billion-dollar loan in the direct lending space that uh, I think most people would uh, say broke some, uh, some barriers, if you will, for the middle market lending space. Don't forget, uh, I think when we started in the business, uh, we used to describe middle market as companies with $10 million of EBITDA and enterprise value of $100 million. I think today uh, most people uh, would use sort of companies from $10 million of EBITDA to $100 million of EBITDA. Uh, with enterprise values to a billion and a half dollars. So uh, again, the description, the definition of middle market has evolved over the past 20 or 30 years. Uh, God, I guess I've been in this business a while. Uh, but uh, all that being said, so, so 
fairways have gotten much wider. Right. Uh, Q League was just an example of a great sponsor, great company, uh, enormous equity be behind us. We, we obviously felt enormously comfortable uh, on the quality of the credit. But uh, the bigger question of where, where does Unitronch go, and we, I think we're the first to really develop the Unitronch product. The Unitronch product is just a stretch senior loan, and, and it is a method by which we compete effectively with large banks, and, or small banks for that matter, because generally uh, the bank is lending to two or three times cash flow and then some form of subordinated debt behind the bank loan. And generally speaking, whether that's in a high-yield bond or a mezzanine loan or whatever the case may be, you're financing to four, five, six times cash flow. The unit tranche simply replaces the senior debt and the junior debt, hence unit tranche. Uh, so uh, that is the Unitronch loan. Uh, we are big providers of it. We're not alone in the world doing it, but it's a, a very rapidly growing asset class. If you're an entrepreneur or a buyout shop, uh, you save yourself a lot of time. You improve your uh, uh, uncertainty. You re reduce the uncertainty uh, associated with making uh, an acquisition of a company by having a Unitronch loan and not dealing with a whole bunch of different uh, disparate investors and lenders uh, and high-yield bond buyers, if you will. Uh, and that's how it's uh, competed to create a, a meaningful portion of that acquisition finance world. And I think we'll continue to. And you think, I mean, so you think these will become more common? Also, do you think, I mean, is, is there, are there bigger deals than this one for you to do? Or is this kind of where does this set the mark on? No, no, I, I think, um, I, I don't know how much bigger, but uh, the, the ability to make loans from maybe uh, 10 million on the low end to a billion or even a billion and a half on the high end is something we pride ourselves on. We think that's a, a, an advantage, if you will. Okay. Um, of course, if it's not a good company, it doesn't matter <laughs> what you do. So uh, <laughs> I think you've got to focus on good companies first. But having that flexibility, it means we can do business with more types of, of people. Okay. Let's, um, what, the last one I want to talk about is Clayton Williams, um, a company in the, the oil and gas exploration business. You went in sort of when, when everyone was running out, um, has turned into a uh, Obviously, a huge uh, investment return for you guys. Uh, recently, sold it to Noble uh, Energy, but but that was also an unusual. I mean, that was. I mean, you went in, you got warrants, you got very high interest rate on the loan, um, and they came out the other side on the back of that. Talk about what you saw there in his energy. Well, it's, it's easy uh, after the fact to. Uh, <laughs> right. to to describe that uh, when you invest $350 million and make a billion dollars in less than a year, and uh, you can't say it was just luck, uh, even though it might have been. Uh, no, no. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I think Nate Walton, uh, who leads our oil and gas business, uh, listen, the flexibility of capital that we use and that is one of our hallmarks in our private equity and lending businesses, and I say flexibility of capital, this was an investment done out of our private equity fund, and we were a lender, as you correctly point out, we were a lender to a great company that had a bad balance sheet. And we kept them alive, so to speak, and let them play offense in a very difficult time in the oil and gas business. And their ability to play offense, uh, where we were at least making a loan with upside, of course, but a loan that, if you will, protected us, we thought, with very low oil prices to have a minimum rate of return. And if, in fact, the oil business turned around and if some of their investments played out as we hoped, uh, would position us to do well and really as importantly and maybe far more importantly, position the existing equity holders to turn around and perform even more beautifully. So again, if you think about it, yes, we did well and yes, we were somewhat fortunate in the timing, 
But as importantly, and it's uh, why our business has uh, benefited from that in many ways, the existing company, the existing shareholders, uh, had a much better deal than, if you will, our loan, and, and they deserved it because uh, they took a chance to play offense. You know, people forget it, it wasn't our investment. Our investment certainly did well for us and our investors, but the existing shareholders had an option to play offense at, at really a time that many folks, as you correctly point out, were running. So it really is their management team, I think, that deserves more of the credit. Uh, but all that being said, both sides, uh, the, the lender, which was us in this particular case, with very flexible capital, and, and the board and, and shareholder base uh, did beautifully and, and, and took a real risk at a moment in time that they felt strongly uh, right. needed, to be, needed to be repositioned. Now, I know you, you obviously focus very much on individual companies, and, and, and that's the nature of your business. But... You did that at a time, clearly, as you mentioned, oil prices were depressed. You thought, obviously, I presume you thought there was a good management team there. There was things to do. What is your position now on broadly? Do you have to take a, take a broad view on the energy, U.S. oil and gas, um, where prices are in the Permian, where, where these guys played, which is obviously where all the action is? Well, there, there's several other fields where there's a lot of action. And, again, the oil and gas industry uh, is an important industry in this country. We're believers that it will survive. We're, we're believers that it plays a role. Uh, we're believers that uh, being uh, less dependent on outside oil and gas is probably a good thing for this country and this economy. So, yes, we believe uh, and are meaningful investors in the oil and gas sector. Most of what uh, we do and focus on is, is not, uh, if you will, companies that need to see oil prices spike, but more so uh, management teams and acreage that we have huge belief in. And that's what our oil and gas group has done pretty successfully. So uh, we'll stay with what we're doing. So you're, you're unbothered about where oil prices move, what OPEC is doing. I mean, you care about it in terms of your investments, but your, your big picture view is you're, you're a buyer of U.S. energy, uh, basically. Again, we're, we're uh, believers in, in U.S. energy, but we're much bigger believers in uh, high-quality acreage and management teams with our capital, and that's where we've learned to, to be okay relative to risk and, and reward. And, and again, that's what we get paid to do. Right. And for what it's worth, our view is this is an important industry for us and for our private equity and lending businesses. And please understand, we keep talking through, uh, being a lender to the oil and gas sector has helped us over the past 25 years being a private equity investor and vice versa. So, uh, and that would be uh, true for virtually every industry that we play in. So okay. being a credit investor and a private equity investor uh, is a huge complement to our two businesses, and I might add uh, a very substantial complement to our real estate business, understanding tenants, understanding growth opportunities and growth markets. So uh, again, we, we do believe, uh, I'm not saying we're the only ones, but we do believe that our real estate business, our private equity business, our credit business, truly complement one another in the diligence that is required to make a good investment. And we've seen that uh, time and time again. Let's pull back a little bit and talk about some things broadly with your firm, Aries. Um, the, your assets under management are up to about $100 billion. So I think the growth rate is something like 20% over the last 10 years, but it has slowed down a little bit in the last couple of years. Um, is, is there a particular reason for that, or are you looking to, you, do you want to be bigger? Do you want, I mean? No, no, again, this might sound uh, 
my definition of success growing up was, was leather sneakers. So uh, listen, we're, uh, uh, we're doing fine. Um, uh, uh, and again, under the category of growing, to us, assets grow based on performance. Assets follow performance. And yes, I, I don't want to sound, uh, I think we could grow a little bit uh, more rapidly than we have grown in the last year or two if we wanted. Uh, again, it's, it's not about the size. Uh, your investors uh, really care about their performance above everything else and uh, putting money to work uh, is not, uh, it's not a perfect time in every asset class we play in. So we want to be careful in what we do and how we do it. And some markets and some asset classes actually benefit from being much bigger. The direct lending business, our flow is actually better. Our investment performance, our decision making is actually better being bigger. That may not be the case in our real estate private equity or corporate private equity businesses okay. to the same degree. So uh, that's something that we have to incorporate. Um, into how we do business. And our investors, uh, our owners of Aries Management stock, may not see it the same way as our investors in our respective funds, but it's performance first. There, there's no confusion. Uh, growth is important, and I actually do believe Aries is well positioned as the world of alternative assets is growing. But we've never been a, oh my gosh, we have to grow at 15% or 20% or 10%. I, I do think we're going to grow our assets over the next 10 years. Uh, but it is not a, a, a determinant of our happiness. Well, let's talk about the performance aspect of it rather than the, the size, because your funds, I mean, I was looking over here. I mean, so your, your PE is, looks like it's returned about 20% over time. Credit seems to be 10 to 13. Real estate, 15%, I think, if I've got those IRRs right. But then I look at your publicly traded stock, and the annualized return on that since you've been public is, doesn't live up to that, those numbers. Um, Very diplomatic. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to be. Although, uh, rather than be defensive, I could say we pay a cash dividend. That helps. All but, right. Uh, no, no. So, but, but on an annualized return basis, it's not there. Why? I mean, Steve Schwartzman has run around for years banging on about private equity firms or alternative asset firms are not getting the proper valuation. Why, why, can't, why are you not able to deliver the returns on, the, on your public stock that you can on your private funds? Um, Again, uh, I look at the business itself and are we investing successfully for our limited partners, for our high net worth investors, for our sovereign funds, for our insurance companies, for our pension funds. If we do that over time, I do believe our public stock will trade up. Do we have the float one would want us to have as every institutional investor has complained to us that we don't have a big enough float, uh, legitimate criticism? Uh, have we, ha has the whole alternative asset sector uh, determined what metrics are most valuable to be valued uh, in the public marketplace. Uh, you ask five analysts, you get five different metrics on what's most relevant, whether it's distributions, whether it's asset growth, uh, assets under management, whether it's uh, actual cash earnings, whether it's this fee-related earnings, whether it's economic net income. There are so many metrics in the alternative asset manager as well as the structure of public companies, which are not necessarily uh, publicly traded corporations, but S-Corps and C-Corps, there's a lot of different structural issues for large shareholders. So I do believe the alternative asset management companies have work to do to simplify their corporate structure, us included. Uh, and I think over the next several years, if growth continues and performance continues, as I think it has recently over the past several years, I think the marketplace will start to appreciate these public stocks. Uh, okay. At least we hope so, but I don't know. Uh, being an investor for as long as I've been, uh, I haven't run into many public company 
CEOs, owners, investors that don't complain that their stock doesn't trade high enough. Uh, I've always determined I wouldn't be one of them. Uh, but at the end of the day, we're just hoping to, to make our business more transparent and easier to understand because we do think we're going in the right direction. Elon Musk is on the other side of that. He thinks his stock is too high, apparently. But um, <laughs> go, go, go figure on that. Um, all right, I just want to ask, we have a couple minutes left. I just want to ask on a, a couple. I don't, by the way. <laughs> um, a couple. Uh, his stock, I, 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 I don't think my stock is. OK, gotcha. Um, couple, a couple minutes left. I just want to ask a, on a couple of um, potential investment ideas that are more personal, I guess, in nature. You are actively involved in education issues. Um, largely at the school um, level training. You're on the board of trustees at Georgetown. But in terms of higher education, costs are obviously continue to rise astronomically. Student debt in this country is out of control, I guess, would be one way to say it. Are you a buyer or seller of higher education in this country? Well, I'm a huge buyer of higher education uh, for our population uh, and the importance of higher education. But I actually think, and I have said this many times, but I, I believe higher education, particularly uh, really good public and private universities, have to look at their costs and costs to educate. And you have to look at some of the retail models that are going through very, very difficult, difficult transitions in this online world. Higher education has to use the internet to lower their costs to educate. And whether or not that happens or not will determine which colleges are actually alive 10 years from now. I believe that to my core. So yes, there'll be certain colleges because of their endowment, because of their alumni, no matter what you do and no matter what their costs are, will survive. But we have hundreds of colleges that will fail uh, to exist unless they transition their model. And uh, I don't think $60,000 per year per student is gonna be survivable, if that's the right word, that's going to be sustainable, maybe a better word, uh, sustainable 10 years, 20 years from now. But yet, higher education uh, for our student body is of critical importance. It's not, uh, I don't, uh, every kid does not have to go to college, uh, even though many people believe, because if you look at the dropout rates, particularly by your socioeconomic background, is staggering. And this is something people don't want to focus on, and it's a, a staggering issue particularly if you look at the top quartile versus the bottom quartile of who graduates within six years of going to college. And this is something very few people want to acknowledge or focus on. And it's a dramatic difference that, uh, that we have to figure out a way to get the bottom quartile of kids that go to college, socioeconomically speaking, to finish college. We have to figure that out uh, of critical importance. And right now, uh, that rate of graduation is appalling in this country. Another area where there's quite a bit of inflation is uh, sports television rights, of which now you personally have a vested interest um, with your ownership of the Hawks as an investment and, and because of that big sort of tipping point that I guess the tele television industry is in. I mean, it's obviously a live event, but it's also a big sure. television business. How are you feeling about where that's going, where ESPN is, where, you know, just the whole sports rights and the, the value of television and, and all of that? How does that play into what? Uh, again, uh, I mean, ESPN, 
a lot of folks are, uh, are spending so much time on costs of, of different types of all cable networks. But please understand from an NBA perspective, from a value of an NBA franchise, uh, to me at least, and uh, again, it's self-serving to say I'm bullish, uh, but I, I really don't look at sports content as a domestic discussion. I think you have to argue, at least I would argue, uh, it's a global discussion. And what global sports exist today and have the chance to truly prosper globally over the next 10 or 20 years? Uh, clearly, uh, soccer, football, depending on what part of the world you're in, soccer is a global sport. Uh, I would argue the second most uh, probable global sport. I actually happen to believe it's basketball. I happen to love basketball. I happen to... Uh, I think it's a, a fantastic sport, but it, if you look at uh, who's going to watch basketball games, whether all of or part of a basketball game, and whether or not the NBA is the best basketball league by far on the planet, if you make those two assumptions, uh, I think you should be pretty excited about owning an NBA franchise. I guess you are, then. Uh, I, <laughs> I'd be excited even if I didn't figure it. Uh, uh, all right. So well, listen, please join me, everyone, thanking Tony for his time. That was Tony Ressler, the co-founder of Ares, talking with me in Century City. He's clearly hoping for success out of the Trump administration and troubled investments like Neiman Marcus. In some ways, the discussion reminded me of the opening song in the movie La La Land. Quote, and when they let you down, you'll get up off the ground, because morning rolls around, and it's another day of sun. That's it for now. This podcast was produced by Bethel Hapdit, Kate Duguid, and Andrew D'Antonio. I'm Jeff Goldfarb, sitting in for Rob Cox. If you haven't already, please sign up for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts on iTunes and wherever else you satisfy your audio cravings. You can also find us at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter at BreakingViews and at JGFarb. Thanks for tuning in. We'll have a fresh episode next week.